Hey, if y'all want to just stay up here and play behind me, that'd be fine. Wow. Oh my gosh. So I was, I was asked earlier, so Pastor Fisher, do you sing? Nah, yeah. Compared to what? Not like that. Oh my gosh. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that give you just a beautiful picture of, uh, just, just imagine when we are finally in the presence of the Lord and there are choirs of angels and, and it's, just, it's just deafening. It's just deafening. Thank you. That was just such a beautiful gift. That was a gift to our church. Thank you. And, and Arthur, especially thank you to you for taking the time, making the effort to make this happen. Because, you know, apart from you sacrificing your time and getting everybody gathered and, and, and ready, it wouldn't happen. So thank you, Arthur, for, for doing that for us. Okay, I, I just feel I, we need to pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for that, just that little glimpse of, of heaven. We think about that moment when every tribe and tongue and people and nation is around your throne and you're getting all of the honor and you're getting the glory. And we're raising up our voices in praise to you. Father, thank you for this moment. I pray that as we look in your word that uh, you, you, you would be clearly seen. I pray, Father, that the words that I speak would not simply be my words, but be, they'd be the words of your spirit opening your text to us. Father, now uh, get our attention focused on Jesus, our attention focused on the word. Father, speak to us through your spirit and give us courage to listen and obey and respond courageously to all that you say. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I had a moment this week where it just dawned on me. I thought, okay, you know, it was just, it was literally one year ago yesterday that I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And I hadn't even thought about it, right? I hadn't even thought about it. It's funny how time flies and you forget about things and, uh, it's like, oh, okay, you know, this has been, it's been quite a year for us. And we've seen God's faithfulness, his hand in, in really wonderful and beautiful ways. But as I was reflecting on that whole process, uh, you know, when I was diagnosed about a month later, I was down getting surgery and they took out the whole thyroid gland. And so as a result of that thyroid gland being gone, I had to get thyroid medicine. I had to get a replacement hormone uh, put in there. And so when they started me on thyroid medicine, they started me kind of at a low dosage. And I figured that out because, you remember, I, I was raised in New York, so I, lo- I love cold weather, right? I, li- I like snow, I like, I like icy rain, I just love it when it's cold. And I remember at one point I was sitting in my office and I had a down coat on and I was freezing, right? I'm like, okay, something's not right with my body here because I was just like bone cold and I couldn't get warm and I had a heater next to me and like I'm always hot. And so, you know, I called my doctor, I go, something just doesn't feel right. And so I, I went back and she increased my medicine once and then she increased my medicine again, right? She's trying to get me up to the right level. And at one point I was sitting with her and I said, you know, I understand how you set these levels is you've got like a, you've got a range, right? And the range is based on averages of different people, but you need to understand something. I run hot, right? Like I, I'm, if you're going to put me somewhere, park me on the high end of the scale because I got lots of energy and I, won't, I don't want to be down here. Dry, I run hot. Right? So she said, okay, Brian, that, she laughed at me. She said, okay, okay. But you need to understand that if I give you too much medicine, you're going to start to have heart palpitations. Right? Your heart's going to get out of rhythm. It will run too fast. And I looked it up. It's called arrhythmia. Right? It can run too fast. It can run too slow. It can skip a beat. And she said, I don't want to put you into arrhythmia. So I've got to get you in the, in the right window here uh, so your heart doesn't get out of rhythm. And I thought, you know, why waste cancer and not get an illustration out of it, <laughs> right? What an incredible metaphor for us. Sometimes our heart gets out of rhythm with the Lord. Why is that? Because we put something other than Jesus in the center of our lives. Worship is the center of our lives. And when something other than our love for Christ, putting our affections on him, becomes the center, all of life gets out of rhythm, right? If your physical heart is out of rhythm, all of life is out of rhythm. If your spiritual heart is out of rhythm, your life is out of rhythm. And so what God does for us is he, he gives us habits, practices that puts our heart back in rhythm. So if you're not there yet, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. And if the pages are stuck together... Right, because you haven't opened it in quite a while. You just look on the table of contents and start turning right. Leviticus 23. One of the things that we've noticed as we've been digging through the Pentateuch is uh, it's all about Israel, and there's not really anything that, that, that's really that special about Israel. In and of themselves, 
they're not special. Right? They're not, they're not a, a big nation. They're not a powerful nation. They don't have a great military. They don't have a lot of wealth. In fact, at this point in time, they don't even have any land. And the land that God's going to bring them into grows rocks. Right? There's nothing inherently special about Israel. God says to Israel, what makes you special is me. What makes you special is your relationship with me. And when I'm at the very center of your life, then your life is different. It's special. It's different from all of the other nations around you. And so what God did for them is he gave them a place for worship and he gave them a practice of worship. The place was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, uh, it was a tent. It was called a tent of meeting. And when the people were traveling through the wilderness, the tent went ahead of them. They weren't leading. They were following. But they were following pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They were following the presence of God. But then when God said stop, they would pitch the tent and they would build their entire community around the tabernacle, right? Worship was the, the physical center of their community, right? So he gave them a place, but he also gave them a practice. And he said to them, this is how I want you to worship. Don't worship me how you want to worship me. Worship how I want to be worshiped, right? Let me, let me teach you what my love language is. Now, uh, some of you are familiar with love languages, right? Different people have different languages through which they give and receive love, right? Um, well, I, I will tell you, sometimes um, my wife will bring me a challenge or a problem, and I listen to her because I'm a really good listener. Like she would say, she's clapping right now. I'm a really, I'm a really good listener. No kidding, right? I, right? Okay. And I'm, you know, I'm reflective and I'm asking questions. I'm digging in. Right. But I, I have, I have limits to listening, right? I have li- so at some point in time I'm listening and I'm like, I'm also a really good problem solver. And so I listen for a while and I go, okay, here's what you need to do. Right. And, and I know we've been married almost 24 years. And I'm like, don't do it. Don't, don't solve the problem. Right. But I, I just, sometimes I just can't resist. I'm like, God made me to solve problems. So I'm listening, I'm listening. And then I got to solve a problem. And at that point, as soon as words come out of my mouth, I remember, nah, this is not her love language, right? Her love language is me listening, not me solving the problem. She says, this is how I want to be loved as you listen, not as you solve, right? Religion is us telling God, this is how we want to worship you. That's the golden calf. We talked about it last week, right? Remaking God into an image that we want to worship. True worship is giving God what he wants and what he desires and what he deserves. Right? So God gave to Israel this, this rhythm or this cycle of worship that structured, really, their entire lives. Right? So the first part of that structure was daily worship. Genesis chapter 1 verse 5 reads like this. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. When did your day begin? Well, um, for some of you, it probably began like at 1045. You're like, oh my gosh, service is at 11. You know, and you're still walking in. I see you back there. Right, you're still... For others of you, you got up at 5 a.m. and took a run, right? But your day began in the morning. In the Jewish reckoning of time, the day actually begins in the evening. But notice, there was evening and then there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day and the seventh day. The day began in the evening. So as the sun was going down, Jewish people would stop working. They would gather together for a meal. They would give thanks for all of God's provision. Then they would go to sleep. And as they went to sleep, they knew that God was at work. Right? God was working while they were sleeping. So when they woke up in the morning, they were just entering into the work that God was already doing. That's worship. Right? You're just entering into the work that God is already doing. So every single day, they had a reminder that God was at work, and they were just following his work. Right? Second, there was weekly worship. We call that the Sabbath. Right? We looked at this a couple weeks ago, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, it's repeated in Deuteronomy 5. And in both of those passages, it's the longest explanation for any of the, co- or any of the commandments. He says, I want you to uh, remember the Sabbath. I want you to cease. Right? Sabbath means cease. Cease from your labors on that day. And he, he gave him a reason. He said, the reason is because God ceased. Right? God labored for six days and he entered into this cycle of work and rest. For six days God worked. And the seventh day God rested. And why did God rest? Because he was exhausted, right? No. God doesn't get tired. God didn't stop because he was tired. He stopped to give us a pattern for life. And to remind us, every time we stop, we're remembering God is the creator of all things. 
and we are entering into his blessing of creation and all that he has given us. He gives a different reason, actually, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, right? The second giving of the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 5, he says, I want you to labor for six days, and then I want you to rest on the seventh day because you're not slaves. You were slaves, but you're not slaves any longer, so don't labor like the nations around you who are just toiling and toiling and toiling. Instead, labor and then stop and rest and trust me that I will provide for you all that you need because you actually need a day where you get life reoriented and remember, I'm at the center. Because if you're just working and working and working and never resting, you think that your labor is the center, and it's not. Right? So he gave them a daily cycle. He gave them a weekly cycle. Uh, he also gave them an annual cycle. Deuteronomy chapter 16 reads like this. Three times a year, all of your males, along with their families, you shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year they had to come. There were, were three, in a sense, clusters of worship time. There were three in the early spring. And then a few days, about five weeks later, there was uh, seven weeks later, there was another feast. Late spring, early summer, and then in the fall there were three more feasts. Now, I'm going to show you a, a chart Please don't feel like, man, i got to write this down because we'll post it online. It's all good. I, I can email it to you. Uh, I just wanted to give you a sense of how their year was structured, right? So uh, sometime in April, there was Passover. And then immediately following Passover the next day, you had unleavened bread and then first fruits. Then there was a gap of 50 days, Pentecost, the long, hot days of summer. And then in the fall, trumpets, atonement, and booths all occurred together. So if you're in the book of Leviticus, I want to walk through these real quickly, right? Leviticus chapter 23. So I knew you'd be disappointed if we didn't dig into Leviticus today. All right, so Leviticus 23. Let's read in verse 4. It says, These are the appointed times of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In other words, this is how I want you to worship me. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Passover was the first festival. Because their life as a nation began with redemption. They were slaves, and God said, now I'm going to take you out of slavery, and I'm going to bring you into freedom. Right? You were slaves of sin, you were slaves of death, you were slaves of Egypt, and now I'm going to redeem you. I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to slaughter that lamb and put its blood on the doorposts and across the lintel of the house. And then when the angel of death passes through and he punishes people for their sins, you will not be punished. Because a substitute offering has been given in your place. And so what marked the very first of the year was this reminder that they were a redeemed people. Right? They were redeemed people. The next festival that occurred was unleavened bread. Look at verse 6. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there's the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no, no laborious work. So they ate unleavened bread. Why? It was a reminder. When God says, I'm going to redeem you, man, it happened, right? It happened fast. So fast your bread won't even have time to rise. So for seven days you're going to be remembering God's rescue. And then in later years they begin to mark it as a day of purification. Right? God made a break from slavery, but also from sin. And that leaven represents sin. So they went throughout their entire houses and they, they looked in all of the cracks and crevices and corners to see, has any sin crept into our lives? Because we need to make a clean break with the past. Right? Passover, unleavened bread, and then the day of first fruits, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land to which I am going to give, you, to give to you and to reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Right. So this is the first fruits of the first grain, which was barley. And the first thing that they harvested, God said, give it to me. Which means you're going to have to trust me that there's going to be more. Give me your first. Give me your best. Give, give, me, give me your life. Right. And trust me with your life. First fruits. And then they waited, right? They had seven week period or 50 days until Pentecost. Chapter 23 and verse 15. It says, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 
50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So it was the end of the spring harvest, the beginning of the wheat harvest, but it also later marked for them the giving of the law. Right at the beginning of the summer, it marked the, the giving of the law from the, for them, but then came the summer. And what did they do during the summer? They went out into the fields and they worked. And God told me, he said, you know, this land I'm giving you, it's not even as good as the land of Egypt, right? Because Egypt has the Nile, and you can go and you can kick the dirt, and the water will flow out of the Nile, and there are channels built. He said, but you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me that I'll bring the right amount of rain at the right season, then I'll bring the sun at the right time, and you're going to have to go through your fields, and you have to pull up the rocks, and you're going to have to plant, and you have to labor, and you're going to have to do it through the summer. Now, I've been to Israel in the summer. I went in August, and it's worse than Texas. I mean, it's hot, it's hot, it's dirty, it's dusty, it's just, it's, it's rough, right? It's difficult labor. So all summer long, what are they doing? They're laboring in the fields, bringing in the remainder of the harvest and preparing for the next harvest and planting. Read with me verse 22, Leviticus 23. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien, because I'm the Lord your God. Right? So as you're laboring in the field and you're preparing... Don't take everything out of the field. Leave some for the, for the poor and for the needy so that when you plant your field, there will be an abundance, not just for you, but for others. So they labored through the summer and then they waited for the fall festivals to come. And the first was the Feast of Trumpets, verse 23. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest. A reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Okay, one day, blow the trumpets, because in ten days you're going to have the Day of Atonement. And you need to get ready to repent. Or you need to to go through a process of self-examination and confession and repentance. So the trumpet... Feast was calling them in. In 10 days, you've got 10 days to gather again to Jerusalem to deal with your sin on the day of atonement. Verse 26. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the 10th day of the seventh month, it is a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, but you shall humble yourselves and your souls before the Lord and present an offering to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this day for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you on behalf of your sins to the Lord. It was the highest and holiest days. It was not a feast. It was a day of fast. They fasted. They, they didn't eat. But they looked deep inside and they saw, Lord, how, how have I offended you during this year? And will you accept an offering on my behalf? So on the day of atonement, one day a year, just one day, one man, the high priest, was able to enter into the very holy holies of the Lord. Right? Remember that the tabernacle and later the temple was designed to be a picture on earth of heaven. The Holy of Holies was designed to be a picture on earth of the throne room of God. The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne, so to speak. So God would sit upon his throne and on the lid of the throne there were cherubim formed. Because in heaven the cherubim surround the throne of God and they guard and protect the holiness of God. And so God would take his seat upon the throne and as he sat on the Ark of the Covenant, right above the covenant, it was called the mercy seat. And he would look down upon his people and what he would see inside of the Ark were three items. He would see Aaron's rod that budded, he would see a jar of manna, and he would see a copy of the Ten Commandments, all three of which reminded him that his people were rebellious. Right? Aaron's rod reminded him that his people had been unsubmissive to authority, and they had fought against Moses' authority, and they would fought against Aaron's authority, right? And they brought judgment on themselves, because they were so stubborn and stiff-necked. The manna reminded him that he had provided for them. He'd rescued them out of Egypt. He'd parted the Red Sea. And they got in the wilderness. They said, we got no food. We got no water. We got no meat. Right? And they just complain and complain and complain. And he looks down and sees that jar. And he remembers his people are not grateful and they're not trusting. Then he looks at the Ten Commandments. And what does he see? Well, as soon as he gave the Ten Commandments, Moses is coming down the mountain. And what, is he, what does he encounter? A golden calf. So he shatters the the Ten Commandments. So God is sitting on his throne. He's looking down on his people. He looks into the, the ark below his throne and he sees three reminders of his people's sin. And so the high priest would come in once a year, part the veil, and he'd come in with the blood of a bull and he would cover over the ark. Atonement means literally to cover. 
Right, so he would take the blood, he would smear it over the top. So now when God is sitting on his throne, he looks down and what does he see? He sees blood. Right? He, he doesn't see his people's sin, he sees blood covering over their sin. The problem is this, that the blood would dry out and it would flake away. And every year, the high priest had to go back in and he had to put on more blood and more blood and more blood, right? So every year, there was a reminder of their sin, but there was also a fresh start. That's grace. God's grace, he gave him a fresh start, a fresh opportunity. Because atonement is actually not the final feast of the year, right? It's, it's tabernacles or the feast of booths. Read with me in verse 39 of chapter 23. It moves from a day of mourning and repentance to forgiveness and celebration. Verse 39. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you shall live in booths for seven days. All of the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, because I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So the the final feast of the year, the, the final celebration for seven days is that they get to live in tents. Some of you are like, eh. That that seems Worse than anticlimactic, right? That's terrible. Why would, why would we want to do that? I mean, some of you are campers and you go, awesome, right? Pitch a tent, live in a tent seven days. I love doing that. And some of you go, why would you leave your bed? What's, I mean, it, right? Uh, I, love, I love to camp. I love to camp. I love to backpack. Um, my wife had never been camping or backpacking when we were married. So I thought, how wonderful would this be that she learns to love something that I love, right? Because that's, that's, that's a good way to... Show love to my wife. So, so uh, we were in Colorado, and I threw in all my camping gear, and I got her a back. Uh, I got her a, a sleeping bag as well, and a little air mattress. And I said, "This is going to be awesome." And since I'm real experienced camping, I'm not going to really plan this. I'll just find a spot to pitch the tent. This is easy. So we're driving through Colorado, and I saw a really nice spot. So I just unloaded everything. I went out into this little field. It's really pretty, and I'm starting to set up. And she's bringing stuff out, and and I'm not kidding, it's like, like, like horses with wings were the, 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 I mean, the mosquitoes were just huge. You're just like, just, and they're just attacking, right? And we had spray, but it was just like, ah, right? So I could about, I, I'm, I have the tent entirely set up and we're being just completely devoured. And I'm looking at my wife and go, okay, it's bad. This is a bad plan, right? So I pack everything back up. I put it back in the car and I go, okay. I can find another spot. This is going to be great. It's going to be awesome, right? So we drove, drove a little further, and I saw this beautiful little brook, and there was a flat spot. You could tell somebody put a tent there before. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be amazing. She's going to love it. And I put the tent up, and then I got up my little camp stove, and I made her this wonderful meal out of a freeze-dried bag of food. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it was awesome. It's probably shrimp. I don't know. It was just it was amazing, right? And we're enjoying this time together and the sun is setting and it's so beautiful. And then we hear this kind of just little rumble, right? This truck, this truck is driving by the road, just, you know, a little short ways away from it, driving them. And we look out there and it's one of those tiny little Toyota trucks. Do you remember those? The first ones they sold here in the United States, just a tiny little Toyota truck, right? And it's, it's like this because on the back of this tiny little Toyota truck, there's a full-size Chevrolet truck, right? Sideways on this thing. So this thing's going, right? It's barely moving. It's just barely moving up the hill. And the windows are down and you can see uh, in the windows there, there's two super huge dudes with no shirts on, really hairy all over. They look at us, they turn, they smile, they've got no teeth and they're driving up the thing. And like, if you've ever seen Deliverance, like, okay. And I look at my eyes, I could just see in her face, she goes, they're going to kill us in our tent, right? There's we're going to fall asleep and they're going to murder us. They're going to slaughter us. And it's just, you know, and, and it, I'm thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is not good, right? She didn't sleep at all. That was our first and our last camping experience, right? <laughs> so you read this, you go, tents, what's up with that? Well, okay, here's the deal. It's in, in Israel, this is the perfect time of year, right? The weather is perfect. The mosquitoes are gone. 
The harvest has come in. They're surrounded by all of their friends and family, right? They're all camping together. It's a community experience. And it's a picture not only of being rescued through the desert to to Egypt, uh, out of Egypt to Israel, but it's also a picture of the coming kingdom, right? When all of the enemies are, are removed and there's no scarcity, there's no hunger, there's no lack, there's no beasts in the field, but you're reconciled to the earth, you're reconciled to one another, to your friends, to your family, it's, it's just a picture of perfection. It's the final feast of the year, the final celebration, the final of the, of the annual cycle. But uh, there's more. There was also sabbatical worship. right? Every seven years, look at chapter 25 and verse 3. The Lord says, Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath to the Lord, you shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth, you shall not reap. And your grapes of untrimmed vines, you shall not gather. The land shall have a Sabbath, a sabbatical year. And all of you shall have a set of the Sabbath products of the land for your food, for yourself, for your male servants, your female servants, your hired hand, your foreign resident, all those who live as aliens and strangers among you, even your cattle and animals that are in your land shall have all of its crops to eat. In other words, he says, I want you to work really hard for six years, and then I'm going to give you a year off. Wow. That'd be awesome. I, gotta, I, don't, I, don't, I don't go to work for a year. But every time I open my fridge, it's full. That's what he's saying. Trust me. Don't be like the nations around you. But I'm going to give this to you as a gift. I'm going to make your field so productive if you keep me as the center of your life. You don't keep me as the center of your life or you're going to be in arrhythmia. Your heart's going to be out of rhythm. It's going to be out of whack. And the rest of your life is going to become out of rhythm. But you put me at the very center of your life, worship the center of your life, then all life is going to fall into rhythm and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply all the crops of your field and your animals in the, in the fields, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you, trust me. This is how I want you to worship me. Right? But there's even more. Right? There's generational worship. Look at chapter 25 and verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee year for you. And each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his own family. You see, what would happen to people is sometimes they would fall on difficult times financially. They would have to sell their family property. But in the 50th year, that, that wealth would go back to your family, right? So a family wouldn't get trapped in, in generational poverty. God said, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you this year of release. And all of that generational wealth is going is to go back to your family so you can provide for your family. And you're going to celebrate this. Right? You're not going to be a people who, who take and take and take, but you're going to be, be people who give and you protect the needy and you protect the poor and you protect the vulnerable, right? Because that's worship to me. What is pure and undefiled worship before the Lord, James says? To visit the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow, take care of them, right? So I'm going to give you generational opportunities even to worship. And I'm going to give you opportunities to worship uh, whenever, right? As needed or as desired, right? Because you can't control life. You don't know what's going to happen. All of a sudden, God brings a blessing into your life. Well, I'm going to give you sacrifices. Leviticus 1 through 7. There are six offerings. So that when something wonderful comes in, you just go to the temple and you say, Lord, thank you. Right? Or some sin pops up in your life. You go, Lord, please forgive me. Right? So as needed, as desired, every week, every day, every month, every year, throughout your Sabbath periods, throughout all of your generations, I want you to center all of your life around worship, right? Do you see this gift? God is structuring all of their lives around worship. Now, let's catch our breath for a second. I'm, I'm guessing that that is uh, more verses in Leviticus than any of you have ever read at one sitting, right? So, uh, and probably, you know, never had a quiet time. I asked Pastor Marie, she said she has, uh, in all of her years, done one sermon on Leviticus. This is my second Right? In 30 years, I've done two. A couple of years ago, my son and his best friend said, let's read two books of the Bible. So they picked out the L books, Leviticus and Luke. They got through Luke a lot faster, right? Leviticus is tough. What do you learn from it? What you learn is that worship is to be the center of our lives. Right? When we create a rhythm around worship, life works. 
But what we do is we confine worship. We say, worship is what we do on Sundays. It's actually just a part of Sunday. It's when we sing on Sunday. For us this week, it was was just the choir, right? That was worship. We We just had a few minutes of worship. And then we call the rest teaching. So we say, that's... That's worship, right? We're really restrictive in our mindset. But what the Lord says is, worship is actually all of life when you're properly oriented, right? Certainly it is adoration, it is praise, but it's also confession. And it's thanksgiving, and it's supplication, it's your requests. But it's also your work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Let your work be an offering of worship. Let your service to one another be an offering of worship. I've, I've given you spiritual gifts and talents and abilities. And when you give those to others, that's worship. Right? So there's the fruit of your lips. There's the fruit of your hands. There's your work. There's your labor. Evangelism and discipleship. Sharing the gospel. Building up people in the faith. Paul said, the Gentiles who've trusted Christ with me, they're my offering. Right? They're my offering. They say they're like a fragrant aroma that I lift up before the Lord. Sharing your wealth. What do you say? That's a fragrant offering. I share what God has given me, right? So everything, my work, my labor, the fruit of my labor, my praise, my worship, my thanksgiving, all of this is worship because all of life should be worship. What happens to us is that we confine worship to a moment and then we let something else be the center. But worship is the center, and when worship is the center, heart is in rhythm with the Lord, and it's in rhythm with one another, right? So how do you do that? How do you make that possible? One thing is I think we have to start by redefining worship, right? Reorienting it in our mind. So I'm proposing this this morning. Worship is anything and everything we do, think, say, or feel with the goal of honoring the Lord, right? With the intention of honoring the Lord. Stepping back and reevaluating and say, how can I use my work? How can I use my, my finances? How can I use uh, my time? How can I use my, my prayers and my praises and my sharing of my faith? How do I use all of these things as an act of worship, intentionally reorienting my life? Uh, Lord, how do, you, how do I do that? Right? Help me think differently. Help me reorient my life. And I would argue that the way that we do that effectively is because redemption is the rhythm of history. What, what God is doing with all of history, right? not just with your days and months and weeks and years, but with all of history, is that he is reconciling people to himself. Right? Uh, sometimes we look at history and go, man, it just seems completely random. <laughs> What's happening? Is there a goal? Is there a purpose? Is it moving somewhere? And the Lord says, yes, it's toward redemption. So I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you look at all of the key events in the redemptive work of Christ, they all happened on festival days. Did you ever notice that? Right, so God gave Israel the festivals to orient their lives around worship, but God is also using all of the festivals to create a structure for all of redemptive history. When was Jesus crucified? On what festival? There you go. Passover, right? He was crucified on Passover, which is the first feast of the year, which is the beginning of the year, because life begins with redemption. Right? Life begins with redemption. So Paul would write, For Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. Or as John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, but I must decrease. Follow him because he is the one who shed his blood or will shed his blood to remove your sin completely. Right? So Christ was crucified on Passover. When was Christ buried? Well, if you took notes, what's the next feast? Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So 1 Corinthians 5, 7 entirely reads like this. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. According to Paul, when we believe in Christ, what happens? Romans chapter 6. We are identified with the death of Christ. God sees us as buried with him. And if we've been buried with him, we'll be raised up with him so that we don't have to say yes to sin any longer, right? So Paul says, so go into, your, go into the cracks and crevices of your life and find the leaven, right? Find the sin that's creeped in. Why? In order to earn God's favor? No, but because you've already been redeemed. Because you're redeemed the moment that you believe in Jesus. It's an absolutely free gift. You can't earn it. The blood that was smeared over the doorposts and lintel that was a substitute offering. It wasn't because the people inside had cleaned up their act. It's because they believed God and they put blood over the house. And that's Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. He sees his blood and he says, I will pass over and death won't harm you because you have believed. Now, having believed, let's get after that leaven. 
right? Clean out the old leaven. So Christ was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was resurrected on what day? First fruits, right? First fruits. So again, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep, right? First fruits is resurrection, right? First fruits is that, that first life that comes out of the earth. God says that belongs to me because I create life. So Jesus Christ is first fruits, right? He is resurrected. Now, what comes after first fruits? Pentecost. Right, Pentecost. So Jesus was with his disciples 40 days. He's telling them about the kingdom at the end of 40 days. He's about to be taken up. And what does he say? I want you to wait 10 days. I want you to wait 10 days and I want you to go to Jerusalem because something really amazing is going to happen in my redemptive plan. So I want you to wait for the day of Pentecost. Be in Jerusalem. Be ready. Be anticipating because I'm shaping all of history around redemption. Something's going to happen. Are you ready for it? Well, they were. They were waiting, right? What were they doing? They were in the room and they were praying and they were fasting and they were praising and they were anticipating God to pour out a blessing. And what did he do? He gave the Spirit. Right? He gave the Spirit. Previously, the Jews had celebrated Pentecost as the day of the giving of the law. But we saw a few weeks ago, the law is a wonderful gift, right? But it can't produce life, right? Because it's a list. And I go, but where's the power going to come from? I want to do it, but I can't do it. That's Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7, right? He says, there's something in me that desires to do good, but I can't do the good. I hear the list of rules, but there's something in the list of rules that just says, well, maybe I should break them. It'd be more fun, right? Paul says, I read about thou shalt not covet. And I go, ooh, yeah, I shouldn't covet, but now I really want to covet. There's stuff I don't have that I want to have. There's no empowerment in law, or as he would say, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so what Jesus promised on the day of Pentecost was the Spirit. When the Helper comes, he said, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit of God fell upon God's followers. Right? And they were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in other languages, and people were like, what is going on? We're hearing the gospel in our own language. And Peter says, hey, hey, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. This is what's happening. Jesus is the Messiah. And you rejected him. But now we're here to tell you about him. And he was raised from the dead. And you can find life in him. And you can become the first fruits. Right? You can become resurrected. Right? Spirit of God poured out upon him. And what did they do? They testified. Evidence of the power of the Spirit in their lives. They testified of Jesus. They proclaimed Jesus. So what happens next in redemptive history? Don't jump to the fall, because what happens next is summer. Long, hot, labor in the fields. Church, where are we right now? In redemptive history. We're in the summer. We're in the summer. And, you know, unfortunately... Um, because we uh, live in somewhat of the Bible Belt, and there's still a lot of believers, and especially you know Bryan College Station, uh, we expect it to always be spring. Right? We expect people are always going to treat us nice, and they're always going to be respectful, and always speak nicely about Jesus. But, you know that's not the history of the church. The history of the church is persecution and suffering. It's long, hot days living in the summer. And what were the Jews called to do in those long, hot days? Get into the fields, right? Pick up the rocks. Provide on the fringe for those who need to eat. Bring in the rest of the harvest. This is what Jesus said. Lift up your eyes to the harvest, right? Look at these fields. They're white. They're ready. They're ripe. What do we do, church, while we are waiting? Bring in the harvest. Church, what are we called to do? What put Jesus at the very center of our lives in worship and then go witness? So Peter will say in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right before that, Peter has said, you know, I hear the buzz, and the buzz is this. Where's the the coming of the Lord? When is he going to put all things right? When do we get to jump to tabernacles? Right? I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and we're struggling, we're suffering. He says, don't count it a strange thing when you undergo suffering and persecution. Right? That's normal. That's normal. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So while you're waiting and while you're struggling, while you're suffering, while you're laboring in the fields, remember, I'm not slow. I'm patient. I'm not slow. I'm patient. Why am I patient? Because I don't want 
anyone to perish. So church, what do we do? We labor in the fields, right? We, we go through that, that exercise of, of going out where it's hot and dusty and dirty and dark. And we say, please come, right? Please come. And we don't know when summer's going to end. Man, especially around here. <laughs> so it's going and going and going. Man, it hit 100 again. Keep going. You know what your calling is. You know what your duty is. And you know that there will be an end to this. And how does it end? It's called trumpets. Trumpets. Uh, I grew up in the church and we used to sing a hymn when the trumpet, trumpet of the Lord shall sound. I'm not going to sing it for Marie. Would you come up and sing that now? She said, uh, the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. Time will be no more. And, you know, I just sang the hymn and I never really thought about it. But a few weeks ago, interestingly, uh, one of our, our families, their, their, their son, he sends me videos. We send videos back and forth, right? So he videoed himself and he said, Pastor Brian, who gets to blow the trumpet? I was like, oh, budding theologian. I never thought about that. I don't know who gets to blow the trumpet. I go, well, I'm guessing it's an angel, pal. You know, it's probably an angel. Maybe like Michael or Gabriel, you know, they're probably good on the trumpet. You know, it's like, you know, that's pretty deep that he was thinking about that. And then we're going back and say, well, what do you, why do you think they blow a trumpet in the first place? What's the point of the trumpet? Well, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. Because in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, incorruptible. We will be changed forever. We can never be touched by sin or death any longer. The trumpet of the Lord is God drawing us, right? That's the Lord saying, come to me now, right? Come to me. The trumpet of the Lord shall sound, right? Time shall be no more. We will be resurrected. We'll be raised up like Christ. We will, we will join him as those first fruits of resurrection. Never to be touched again by sin or temptation or death. Wow, it's an incredible hope. But the trumpet does something else, right? Because we've believed we're, we're called to the Lord in resurrection. But Israel has rejected the Lord. And so at the sounding of the trumpets, there's going to be a day of repentance for them, Right? Day of, of trumpets to get ready for atonement, right? Because you've got sin that hasn't been dealt with. And that sin has, sin has just accumulated. Why? Because it's only been atoned for. It's been covered over, but it hasn't been removed. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 29. Matthew 24 verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and, the tri- and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and with great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. He will gather them together. And we're told there will be a, a day of national repentance from Israel because they will realize we rejected the one who paid for our sins and they'll turn and believe in Jesus. Zechariah 12 verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Who is that? That's Jesus, people. Zechariah was talking about Jesus. He said, they're going to look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn because the day of atonement is a day of mourning. And they'll realize they rejected the one who could remove their sins, right? Not just cover it over and not just postpone the judgment so that a high priest would have to come in again and offer another sacrifice and smear the blood over again. But no, Jesus would, as he says in Hebrews, he would enter into a holy place not made with hands, right? Not an earthly temple, not an earthly tabernacle, but instead he would enter into the very throne room of God and he wouldn't bring the blood of bulls and goats, but he'd bring his own blood. And his own blood would be so perfect that the father would say, that's enough. I only need one sacrifice, full, final, complete for every man and woman and child of every tribe and tongue and people and nation of every time that's ever lived on the face of the earth. That's all that I need. Paid for in Jesus, right? Paid for in Jesus. And having received atonement, we have one more moment. It's called tabernacles, right? What's the point of the tabernacle? God living with man, right? That's the point. Why did God say, I'm going I'm to give you a tent and then later I'm going to give you a temple? He said, I want to be your God. 
I want you to be my people. And I want to dwell among you. I want to dwell among you. So where is the tabernacle? Well, it's interesting in John chapter 1, John wrote this. He said, uh, the word became flesh and then dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you read that, you go, what does that have to do with tabernacles? What, the, the word for dwelt in Greek literally is, he will tabernacle among us. Okay? The word became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst. Because God took on human flesh. So while Jesus was living on earth, God was dwelling among men, right? God in human flesh. But then Jesus uh, departed. And he sent his spirit. So where's the tabernacle now? Not a trick question. Uh, Tabernacle now is right there. Right? Men and women, we are the dwelling place of God. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, Paul says, The spirit of God dwells in you. Then Ephesians 4, he goes on and says, You know, it's not just in you personally, individually, but actually all of us together are being built into a dwelling place of God together in the Spirit. So you are the temple and we are the temple. We are the temple. And we're becoming, hopefully, this beautiful picture. Thank you, New Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church, for joining us today. Of men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and denomination, and background. Right? This beautiful and wonderful uh, mosaic of humanity centered on Christ. And Christ alone, united in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. And then we're told, you know, there's going to be one more day of tabernacles. And that's when uh, God will come again and he will dwell on earth. And he will send uh, New Jerusalem. Right? Remade, uh, heaven actually comes to earth, right? We don't go to heaven, right? You know that? Heaven comes to earth, and uh, it comes down in the form of New Jerusalem, and there are men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered there, and God says, now I will dwell among men and women, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And in that day, time shall be no more, right? Because there will be no more tears, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain. That's tabernacles, right? It's a great camping trip. It's awesome, right? Uh, no, there are no bugs, there are no mosquitoes, there are no enemies, there's nobody scrambling for food. We've all got plenty to eat, and we're enjoying our reconciliation to earth. We're enjoying our reconciliation to one another. We're reconcili- enjoying our reconciliation even to enemies. There's no more threats whatsoever. We're dwelling together in peace with God forever. That is tabernacles, right? So how do you apply that? What do we do with that? Well, and I'd argue we all get out of rhythm. We all get out of rhythm. We get out of rhythm because something takes the center place in our hearts other than the Lord. And so we've got to get back into rhythm. And we only get back into rhythm by doing it intentionally, right? Worship at the center of our lives doesn't happen accidentally. You have to intend to do it. So uh, I love my wife. Actually, really, I enjoy my wife. We have, we have fun together. We, we, we really like being together. I love her. But if you were to come up to me and say, well, Brian, uh, I know that you, you love her. Do you tell her that you love her? I go, nah, she knows. So we're all good. I told her once, and it hasn't changed, so we're good, right? You're like, okay. That doesn't sound like love. So do you, like, do you serve her? I go, no, she didn't really need anything from me. I'm, we're good. What would she need from me? So, okay, you don't, you don't tell her you love her. You don't serve her. So do you, like, give her gifts? Is that how you show her? I go, no, because there's nothing that's really worthy to show how much I love her, so I don't give her anything, right? You're like, uh, I don't think you know what love is. You are not speaking her language at all. You need, you need to speak her language. And that's going to require some intentional change. So I'm going to give you an assignment. It's a really simple assignment. Maybe, I think maybe 30 minutes is what it's going to take you. Once you get out a piece of paper, and I want you, you don't have to do 30 minutes now. Sorry, if that was confusing, right? You can do it later, but I don't want you to delay this. I want you to, to write out all of the activities of your life. You write out the discrete activities of your life. I wake up in the morning. I eat breakfast. Right? I drive to work. I go to work. I take a break at work. I have lunch, right? I go for a run. I go for a walk. I 
spend time with my grandkids, spend time with my kids, right? I, I go to bed at night. I take a shower. I do, okay, I want you to write, literally, like literally write out every activity of your life and then next to it, write out, how can I make this an act of worship? But how can this be transformed into this moment of a presence of the Lord where I'm realizing whether I'm singing praises or whether I'm serving others or whether I'm laboring for a dollar or whether I'm sharing the gospel or whether I'm washing my dishes. All of life is an act of worship, right? Recenter lives so their heart gets back in rhythm with Jesus as the center, okay? 30 minutes, but just think about it because it it's not gonna happen accidentally. It's intentional. Put Jesus at the center. So as we close, um, we're gonna worship. Um, it's a form of worship, right? It's not all worship, but we're going we're to sing a song together. And as we're singing a song together, I want you to just take a moment and, and consciously remember that Jesus has rescued you out of slavery to sin and death. Right? So today we worship in freedom. Um, remember that uh, all of life is worship and let this moment be in a sense a recentering moment as we, as we lift up our voices in praise. Let it be an offering to the Lord together. Tim? God, how we thank you for the rhythm of the worship on this day. How we thank you for this encounter. How we thank you for how we feel your love in this place. How we thank you that you're showing us that it's no, neither male nor female. It's neither black nor white, but it is your Holy Spirit that's living among us. God, thank you for Pastor Brian. Thank you for his beautiful wife. And thank you for our brothers and sisters in this place. We pray this in the power and in the authority of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. And every believer shouted, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Be the church. Be the church this week, right? Center all of your life around worship and be the church. We'll see you guys next week.